Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Daniel Strain, and today I'm joined by a new co-host, Thomas Schink. Uh, Thomas, hello, hello Thomas. Uh, Thomas is... Uh, our editing director, and um, is also on the SNS Council. And uh, Thomas has been with us since the beginning, and um, he also is one of the writers. Uh, you'll find a lot of his articles on our website, and uh, he does great stuff. And so uh, we invited him to join us to be one of our co-hosts here. And today we're going to be talking about Spiritual Naturalist Perspectives on Reincarnation. And we say it that way because, uh, like all of our topics, we are just a few spiritual naturalists, and there's variation among spiritual naturalists. They have different ideas about things. But at least this way, you'll get to see uh, uh, some examples and some ideas, and we want to hear your ideas and input. So um, after you listen to this, please feel free to uh, leave us a comment on the page for this episode. So uh, what do you think, Thomas, uh, reincarnation? Well, uh, I'll start by saying, you know, that I, I don't believe that I have ever, I as anything that I can relate to as myself has ever existed in any past form or will exist beyond the day I, I die. But I think there are ways of thinking about the idea of reincarnation that actually, uh, maybe I'd say mythical ways of thinking that, that makes sense. Um, but I wanted to just start, uh, I've always found it fascinating that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, the, the religions of India, particularly Hinduism and Buddhism, that, that do believe in reincarnation often don't really believe in, the, in a self, in an individual self. And it's always intrigued me that um, if, if there's no self, what possibly can reincarnate? And I've, I've read some really fascinating, and it seems like um, writers of India approach that topic very much like writers in the West approach the topic of how can there be evil in a world when God is all good and all powerful. They, they can write some really, really interesting things, but in the final end, it never convinces me. So I was wondering what your take on, on that is. Well, there's a lot of uh, peripheral things um, that first come to mind, like, uh, for example, the difference between rebirth and reincarnation. I like the term rebirth because a lot of times that term is distinguished from, uh, say, the Hindu concept of reincarnation. And one of the, I think of Buddhism as somewhat of a reform uh, of Hindu reincarnation concepts. So uh, in, in their concept, there is a atma, a spirit or an essence that uh, is transcending of, of the individual life and it transmits on to, you know, a soul that carries on. But in the Buddhist uh, uh, reformatting of that idea is that, like you said, there's no self. There's no continuous permanent self. Um, 
So rebirth is a way to distinguish between the two concepts. And the way I've heard it described, or the way I've heard it, you know, that question that you put, how can there be rebirth if there's not a soul? Um, I've heard it put in terms of uh, an analogy of a, uh, you know, those rings that you press into wax to give your seal on a letter. Mm-hmm. That it's kind of like that. It's uh, you've got the pressing of it into wax and then you've got that, that seal that carries on, even though when you get that letter, there's nothing of the ring in there. I mean, other than <laughs> maybe a few particulates, but nothing consequential has come from the ring itself. And yet you can still see the impression. And what that makes me think of is that uh, it's like a mold in a positive. And so you can, let's say that uh, I do things in my life. They imprint upon the world. They affect the world. And then it makes the world a certain way. And then, the next person who comes along is formed by that world in which they live. So um, in that sense, you have imprinted your thought patterns into another person by via the environment. Um, So you've basically, you know, made the world a better place or a worse place and it has helped to form who that person has become in the future, another person, a different person. Hmm. I've actually heard, a, uh, I've actually had a, a Zen Buddhist um, kind of priest give me a, a very different version of Buddhist reincarnation where um, instead of reincarnating into another life, it's that we, re- we reincarnate every moment so that the the real idea of ceasing to reincarnate is to is to stop stop the uh, the flux of the flux of our life so that we can momentarily or permanently step outside of this uh, kind of endless flux of thoughts and impressions that make up the self. So that's that's actually a way that. Um, you know, I, I think that's an interesting way of, of looking at it that in terms of meditation can really be uh, helpful. I mean, the way, the way what you've said is, I think, fairly obvious, but it doesn't make me, certainly doesn't give me any feeling about living. It doesn't do much for me in a way because that's, well, it's pretty obvious. That. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's only one part of the puzzle. I mean, the, the concept itself is vast. It's, it includes a lot of different layers and, and uh, levels. And so one of those is what you said, the fact that we're constantly reincarnating. Um, I'm not the same person I was when I was 14. I'm, a complete, I'm, as, I'm more different from that person than I am from a lot of my friends that I know now. I mean, if you just think of a person as a construct of memes or uh, ideas or memories or whatever, um, whatever that person is, the essence of that person, you'd be more uh, justified in equating me and uh, several of my similar thinking friends as the same person than you would me and that person who lived 
uh, so many years ago in my own body. And even my body, even physically, uh, biologically speaking, we're constantly regenerating uh, uh, in complex systems theory. It's called autopoiesis is the concept of, uh, it's like the ship where the pieces keep getting replaced and at some point you have a whole new ship. Um, so that's another form of, of rebirth, continuous uh, cycle of, of death and birth, death and birth going on on every level, cellular, mental, personhood, uh, environment, everything. But the thing you said about, uh, you know, it doesn't uh, do the same thing for you, this concept of, of imprinting on other lives. Well, the, the reason that it doesn't do that is because it's just one piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle is um, it's, it's this idea of, of uh, duality where there is in fact uh, interconnectedness. So I've heard it talked about as uh, I can't remember the quote now, but it's something like um, somebody asked a master like, how are we to treat others? And he says, there are no others. And so the idea is that um, our personhood, as we seek to escape the confines of the ego, we broaden our consciousness, our awareness um, to be uh, where our sense of self expands and migrates to a larger and larger perspective. And as we do that, then it, it, the distinguishing line between my life and someone else's life or other lives becomes more and more blurred. And that, that is a crucial concept to, I think, getting this concept of rebirth is that um, because the first thing people want to say, well, you know, even if I imprint on the, the environment and then the environment imprints back onto this other person, that person's not me. But part of the Buddhist voyage of enlightenment is to recognize that they are you and, and they, and they are you and you are them. And, uh, we are all together. <laughs> actually in, in that regard, I, I'm actually, um, probably like the, the way that's stated more in the, like the Upanishads and the, the Bhagavad Gita than in Buddhism, um, which is to, um, to say that there's only one, in, in those, there's actually only one God who is everything. So we are, we are not, we're all part of that. Now, that's a, a religious way. And so uh, we don't, there really is no reincarnation. We're all, every single being is a incarnation of the same one being. And I actually think there's a kind of a naturalistic way, an interesting naturalistic way of thinking about that, because if we, in, instead of having Vishnu or uh, Brahma as the, the God, we think of the biosphere, in a certain sense, each of us is an, inc is an incarnation of the same biosphere. And, you know, from it we arise, from it we, re we return. So if we're, if that, if the, if that's what we are, if we are life, I, I, I was thinking about this in another way. We like to say to ourselves, um, talk about my mind or my life. And I was thinking, you know, 
I should really say the mind that creates me because everything about me is contingent on, you know, it, I didn't create myself. Uh, you know, I, I didn't ask to be born. I didn't put any of my genes into place. It's all contingency and it's all coming out of, you know, a pro one great process. And so in a certain sense that I, I can translate that Hindu idea of the one God into the one process of life out of which every, all of us are, are incarnations and that we are all similar in that we all come from the same source. We all have, of course, the biosphere itself has a, a greater context. It comes from, you know, something further. But if we just think at, at that level of the biosphere, we are all incarnations of the, the one biosphere. And that, that actually is very meaningful uh, to me. And it really does help me to understand how, you know, everybody is, I'm a part of everybody and everybody is a part of me in a, in a very naturalistic way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's uh, in a biological way, in a physics uh, mechanics sort of way, but also in a, uh, a mimetic way, uh, intellectual way. Um, well, well, there we get, there is a little, we could add because um, we are not purely biological beings. We're cultural beings also. And, but, the, but we also didn't, you know, we didn't create, create the language we use, we didn't create the knowledge that we gain. So it's just, I mean, in a certain sense, culture, I'm, I'm including culture as part of the biosphere, even though if I were, if I were really, I could get into much more detail about that and, and make some distinctions there. But um, for, for the purposes here, we'll just call it all one thing, the biosphere. Yeah, I mean, to us naturalists, uh, it's all atoms in the void, as, as Democritus put it. Uh, physics and matter and space and time uh, interacting. Yeah, except except I, I, I very much feel we have to add information to that. Um, and, you know, you can, whether, I mean, possibly everything is information. So when, whenever anyone wants to reduce things to matter, um, you know, you, is matter really even a real thing or is all matter just information? So it's, I, I have to keep information as at least the same level. And that's why, you know, some of those, uh, why I don't consider myself a materialist in that sense, because information is always, it's material in some sense, but it's not material in every sense. Um, so that's another that's to do with emergent properties, uh, properties that emerge as a result of the interaction of uh, space, time, matter, energy. Um, as all these things interact, they, they create relationships and causal interconnections that uh, create information in a way. It's, it's like the information is the retelling of what those relationships are. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's certainly one, you know, that information is a emerges from something less, but I also, as I say, it could be that it's information all the way down. And in fact, that matter emerges from information rather than, I mean, we just really don't know that. So it's. Yeah. Um, when we look at the wave particle duality and then we see that, uh, they've discovered it doesn't just apply to light, but matter itself has a wave. It's just got a tighter uh, 
a tighter bell curve to it. It's frequent. Yeah. yeah. But that, but it, that comes up into the, you know, information um, is, is sort of like any kind of reincarnation would have to be the reincarnation of, of information. Because mm -hmm. uh, obviously, but, but that's where I don't, you know, that's why where most ideas of inform of reincarnation really don't resonate with me is because I can't see that the information that comprises me, I mean, obviously if I write, if I'm a writer or something that will imprint, possibly will imprint on somebody else, like uh, the books that I, like reading the Upanishads has a certain imprint on me, but. Um, well, I can tell but, you that right now you're speaking to my mother and father <laughs> in some part because uh, the people that have had an imprint on me have uh, transferred pieces and parts of their mental patterns into me. I mean, a lot of my perspectives and habits and ways of being came about because of the influence that other people have had on me. And so when they do that, they transmit their ideas of value, their ideas of perspective and their ideas of uh, uh, their, their feelings, their responses. Uh, in a way, especially early on, we learn how to think and react to the world by watching others. And so um, if a person, I mean, a naturalist doesn't believe in a soul, so a naturalist must define personhood in some other way, uh, informationally, as you, as you said, um, or mimetically to use the memes uh, kind of concept. But uh, if it's this uh, collection of, of interacting data, then, then certainly pieces and parts of those patterns do get carried on in others. Um, we, we are constantly replicating our, our perspectives and ideas. And so when that happens, we don't necessarily experience it uh, as a second ex first person experience, but everything physical or informational, uh, you know, and as far as the, the fragmenting of it goes, people may be concerned about the fragmenting, but our own minds, this is, this is where the no self and the, the knowledge of the self and the knowledge of rebirth and all these things interact with one another. They're all dependent on one another is that our own minds are, are fragmented far more than we realize, you know, <laughs> experiments on consciousness and, people who've had various brain injuries or had the, the two halves of their brains separated. And then they do these experiences, experiments with what you're conscious of and what you're not and how there seems to be these different sub parts of the brain conscious of different things. And maybe even uh, little hidden persons within us trying to compete for control of, of the whole or uh, so all those kinds of things really go into blurring the line further between where is your personhood end and where does it begin? And I'm not so sure that it ends at the skull. Well, you know, I, I, I would say it definitely doesn't. I mean, because, but that's the problem with the whole notion of personhood is, is that there, there is such a thing that has some kind of solidity to it. I mean, we are, whether we talk about matter or information, we're in flux, you know, we we're constantly, in flux of information, not only 
information that's coming up from the subconscious information coming through the senses. And obviously every time we eat food, we are in, we're, we're bringing in something and that food becomes part of ourself. I mean, it's, it may not be our thoughts, but it's part of our life. So, uh, yeah, and, and this is, I mean, very much for me is part of the essence of, of spiritual naturalism is that recognition of, you know, of interconnectedness and of being a part, it being myself being a, a process within larger processes all the way up to the, the process of the universe itself and possibly beyond that. And that, that for me is, you know, what is the, the idea of God, the, the ultimate context of my life, the source and ultimate context. Um, but yeah, the idea that I, I and, and as, as a meditator, you know, just, I have a great deal of fun watching all these little voices, all these little parts of myself interact. And it's one of the the great experiences, one of the great aha experiences when you're early in meditation, when you suddenly are watching yourself, you're watching yourself arise in your own mind. You go, wait a minute, if that's myself, who's watching this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's really the concept of no self in Buddhism. You know, we all think of it, if you were to imagine this diagram you would have met, you know, the traditional Western way is you imagine there's self or soul or whatever you want to call it with a circle around it in the middle. And then you've got these lines going out connecting to you have your memories, your ideas, your thoughts, your, you know, your feelings, your uh, habits, your sensations, your, you know, all these things. And, uh, Instead, the diagram doesn't look like that at all. Instead, the diagram is uh, thoughts, feelings, sensations, all just kind of in these little balls all jumbled up with a distributed network between them so that there's no real center and there's nothing that has thoughts. There's nothing that has memories. It's all just some big emergent system. And... Um, I, you know, I think that if you just continue to take this idea further, the the connection between the Buddhist concept of no self and uh, the Buddhist concept of emptiness in general become really the same issue, which is mm -hmm. that all of these things that we give these labels to and these we put these ideas around are really kind of just empty of those actual realities. Yeah. And and I'm I'm not a Buddhist. Uh, I, I I learned to meditate through Buddhism, and there was a possibly a time in my life. But it's partly the reason is is that while I I understand what Buddhism is saying about emptiness and all that, for me the concept of process is slightly different because a process is not everything may be in flux but the flux itself is a processional flux. It's not a random flux. And a, for me, a process is a real, even though, you know, it's kind of a hard thing because you can't, it, again, it's that, that question of reducing everything to, to matter. Well, to me, a process is a very real thing, but it can't be reduced to, it can't be reduced in all the ways that science likes to reduce things. It's a, by, in its very nature, it's a holistic kind of thing. But um, so while I can say that, you know, my body uh, is very different from what it was, as you, as you mentioned earlier, how different we are 
yet there is a process that connects me to that four-year-old, that 10-year-old, the 20-year-old. Um, there's a narrative process, but there's also a, a, a biological process. And that's, you know, things change, but they change based on natural law. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's my one, the one place where I get into, I, I'm not, I, I criticize the Buddhist philosophy is I think that they put too much emphasis on, on flux and emptiness and not, they don't have, they don't do justice to the, to the way we actually feel about the permanence <laughs> of the world. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's definitely an agenda in Buddhism. Uh, as a movement and the agenda is to shake us out of our delusions. And so that necessarily uh, in, means that it has to focus on certain things because it's not going to focus on the things we naturally uh, drift toward anyway. Um, but I, I see what you're saying. A lot of, um, just for our listeners sake, um, let me, you know, kind of uh, elaborate on this a little bit. The uh, We talk about Buddhism a lot uh, in a lot of our things and writings, stuff like that. Um, but we also talk about other traditions. Um, some spiritual naturalists are Buddhists. Some do not consider themselves Buddhists. Some consider themselves Christians. Some consider themselves um, Taoists or Stoics uh, or humanists or some combination thereof. Um, each person, of course, decides, you know, what they're going to consider themselves. But we're really more interested in the ideas, what, what works, what doesn't, how do they compare with ideas from other traditions or our own ideas. And, uh, you know, if there's this kind of tolerance level everybody has with how similar does it have to be to this or that to still call it by right. this name. Um, I kind of view Buddhism as this such a vast and complicated uh, tradition that, um, you know, there's a certain core hierarchy of concepts that to me are Buddhism. And it's real strange because the first thing that a lot of people think in the West, when they hear Buddhism, they think they go right to reincarnation or karma. And to me, those are tangent things <laughs> they're they're interesting you know footnotes or uh parts of the philosophy that interact with it but to me the core buddhism is the four noble truths the eightfold path uh that sort of thing and uh i even see like the stuff we've been talking about about reincarnation um and what we're calling our naturalistic interpretations of it or, or takes on it really aren't necessarily that far off from a lot of the ancient uh, ways that they were trying to get at. If you, it, the, you read like a lot of the details in some of the oldest uh, teachings and you start to wonder maybe in their own way, they were trying to get to these concepts and then, of course, cultures came along and wrapped it in all kinds of stuff. And even today, if you just started from scratch and you and I as naturalists came out and started talking about some of this stuff about, you know, the fuzziness of personhood and information, then somebody somewhere is going to pick that up and say, oh, yeah, that's why I can astrally project to Jupiter 
and <laughs> fly around, you know, because it's not the same as the body, you know. It's like they'll take it this extra step and add stuff to it. And so the same things happen to Buddhism, and you've got all these different Buddhist teachers. So because of all that fuzziness and complexity, I feel pretty comfortable calling myself a Buddhist. Um, yeah, I disagree with some random Buddhist you might pick up from somewhere else in the world, but that person who's a, everybody would say is a Buddhist also disagrees with a monk, Buddhist monk in a different tradition or a different part of the world. So, uh, but that's just how I, I feel about it. But I also call myself a stoic and a humanist and all these things. Uh, but to me, the more important thing are the, the concepts and, um, when you were talking about the concept of uh, of the the forms, so getting back to, <laughs> to your point, the uh, the processes and how these appear to be real things. Well, I don't think Buddhism is saying that it's not real. Um, one one of the distinctions that I that I found one time was that uh, Buddhism talks about. Uh, uh, conventional truth and ultimate truth and so conventional truth you say yes there is a you because you meditate you <laughs> tried to become enlightened there's somebody who's doing that so conventionally speaking and it's kind of like conventionally speaking you would say there's a big dipper the big dipper is not a figment of people's imagination it's it's a thing you know it exists the United States of America conventionally exists, but the Big Dipper, when you change your perspective, you fly to another star system, it's not going to look like a dipper anymore, you know? So is it real or is it imaginary? Ultimately, there's this other thing, and I think that's how processes are. It's like, yes, there is a reality that certain things are interacting inside sort of a more tightly with one another than with things outside of that. But ultimately, <laughs> there's this other ultimate kind of truth where we recognize that it's not quite as solid as we think or permanent as we think. Well, let, let me, um, I think that's all. I just want to bring up one other uh, idea here about reincarnation because I've been reading, I, I, I've always been interested in India and I've read endlessly about it and I've, I've never visited it, but I've but one of, one of the things about India is it's, in terms of its beliefs, it's a very, very conservative. And so that it never really, ideas never really disappear. They, they get transformed, but the, um, so that even when people don't believe in reincarnation or even when people don't believe in God, they will, um, they still will pay homage to the tradition. And I think some of the, uh, continuation of reincarnation in India is just the fact that it's respect out of the tradition itself so that nobody will will kind of say no reincarnation doesn't they'll find a way to incorporate the idea into the belief system rather than uh, you know try to challenge it so uh, even though I think that a lot of the writings I've read in India you're clearly the people are skeptical of the notion of any kind of common common understanding of the idea of reincarnation they still um they still hold a certain allegiance to it just out of just because it's part of their culture and um so 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, that same thing is happening everywhere. Um, this cultural version of every religion. It reminds me of uh, one time when I was uh, president of a local humanist group, uh, we had some visitors come in and they were from, uh, uh, they might've been from Russia, but it may, it may have been another, no, I think it was Russia. And um, they said that, uh, yeah, you know, we, we would tell people we're Catholics um, because that's what you are over there. You're Catholic. And then we got over to America and we were like, whoa, you guys really believe this stuff. <laughs> you know, so they just, uh, you know, it was a cultural thing to them. But I'm sure that's happening in all the religions, um, some more than others. But I, I think you're right. I think that's that's part of it. But to me, the interesting thing, I mean, for my own personal practice, and I guess, you know, we try to focus on the practices here in uh, SNS for our for our members, you know, who are naturalists and trying to build their own practice. So I'm, I'm trying to, I try to bring it back to that and think, okay, what in this concept is important for me as a naturalist? Uh, what do you think? I'm not so, so sure that in terms of my own practice, that it really is, is some, it's, it's, it's not a concept that I really pay much. I mean, it's, it's not really integrated into the way I think about, um, I mean, basically in terms of all my practice, I just accept individual death. And that's, I think for me is actually the really important thing is, um, you know, in particular, I'm getting pretty old here and I'm realizing I don't have a whole lot. It's, it's coming. So, uh, you know, the, the feeling, feeling utterly prepared for the inevitability of death. And I've actually, even when I was quite young, uh, spent a lot of time just trying to make sure that I was comfortable with that. So I think if, I mean, the, the idea of, actually the idea of an afterlife in any way doesn't make me feel good. I, I actually think the idea of living on is a horrible idea. I, I, to me, the idea of dying and having, that's it, is it just a very, a very nice idea compared to the idea of living in an afterlife. So, and, and I'm, I'm, I don't know exactly, I mean, obviously other people feel very differently about that. Other people, that's a very important idea to them. The idea that they're not gonna continue on is, is terrifying, I guess. Um, so I guess people have to, you know, people have to come to their own feeling about that. But I do get, as I say, that earlier idea I had about the, the idea that what what is most real in me is not my ego, not this self, but it's the fact it's life itself that's most real, and that I can actually relate to, you know, as I say, the biosphere as the producer of all life. That in a certain sense, the fact that others are going to live after me actually brings me joy. You know, I take joy in the idea that of another person, not me, but another person living other people in, who are living now who've lived in the past. So it's, 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 it's actually that, you know, you talk about expanding outward. It's expanding outward to that idea that, hey, you know, it's wonderful. I'm so, I'm, I, I hope that other people can enjoy life as much as I've enjoyed mine, you know, and I hope that, you know, to the extent that spirituality has helped me um, to help, help me to get to that level of joy that, these spiritual traditions will stay alive. And um, 
you know, without necessarily all the baggage, but that, you know, this is why spiritual naturalism is important to me because I see so much, so many people who are convinced by scientific ideas that spiritualism really doesn't, isn't worth anything or inner, or even more so that going inward, you know, we have such an externalized focused world right now that, that people are just not inward at all. And I think that's a, a really kind of a sad thing because for me at least, you know, I find that the inward part of me is where the, where the action is. <laughs> um, but, but that's yeah. the part. So that, that idea of reincarnation as in the endless incarnation of, of the essence of life and that I'm a, that I can take joy in the idea of other people who are going to be very much like me. I mean, they're going to have different ideas. They're going to have different things. But when you meditate, when you really get into deep meditation, I always feel we're all one, you know, that's a, that every person who's in really, you know, kind of complete meditation is in the exact same place. In fact, I, I had, I once asked a, a Hindu what that word um, namaste means. And he gave me a rather, rather long answer, but he said that it's, it, what it means is that, you know, when I'm in this place, that there's this place. And when I'm in that place and you're in that place, we're the same being. And that's kind of, um, you know, I have, I feel that, that that can be justified naturalistically, as I say, on the basis of we all come out of the same process. We're all, you know, we are all the same kind of machine. You know, the brain is the same in everybody, every healthy human being. So that, you know, I can really feel, you know, I can take joy in the idea of other people, other people's consciousness that they are, you know, that they're there. And so, um, it, it, the, so the idea of the death of the world is much, is a little more depressing to me than the idea of my own individual death, but I don't really believe in the death of the world. I think somehow I have this kind of almost religious faith that somehow there is something out there that's, you know, that this, that wants to be, that wants to have existence and it will always have existence. So I don't, that's, that's, that's actually an irrational belief, but um, it's one that I, I do hold. As Marcus Aurelius said, uh, one day you will have forgotten all things and all things will have forgotten you. So I kind of proceed on the assumption that everything's going to be gone someday, you know, dissolved into nothingness. And uh, not only me, but everybody I know and humanity and everything ever built by human beings. Uh, I, you know, I, I'd look at it more from the perspective of what is the nature of a healthy human being. And the nature of a healthy human being is to be uh, social animal that's rational and just and compassionate and when we act in accord with our our nature um, then we um, as moral rational beings then we will flourish and so to me it's not about the external circumstance of we have to make sure that these people survive or I survive or carry on or some kind of results driven thing but it's more about motivation driven yeah, I just wanted to 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 follow up though that I I all I mean I don't I, when I say that something will go on I I'm not thinking of either I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm thinking of you know uh, the kind of cosmological theories that now have to 
posit a multiverse and that that have come to the con kind of the conclusion that that even though this world is going to run down um, that there are endless universes now that's all kind of out there but it, it actually um, I, I, it does the idea that other universes like our own so that other beings like us would still exist perhaps endlessly is uh, I guess that's that little bit of the the idea of eternity that has a um, that to me it's it, it brings a certain kind of happiness even though it has nothing to do with me whatsoever just the idea that um, that something will exist you know is I, I, is a nice idea I think although I got to say some of those cosmological ideas are also you know they get a little mind-boggling but um, that's a whole different topic though <laughs> yeah the um uh the the thing about the cosmological ideas uh, um you know they're kind of in the same ballpark as when uh the buddha was asked about uh um esoteric ideas about what happens after you die and everything and he said well those things aren't important to religion religion is about relief of suffering and so mm -hmm. i i kind of just i think if we stay humble and we say well we don't really know all this stuff it's fascinating to think about it it's neat to think about it but um to me that it's a lot more practical it's like you know uh i mean i know it is for you too but i mean i i focus on the, this practical side of it about you know if I if I stay mindful of the interconnectedness of me to everyone else and what I do in life affects other people, and I remember and I I can gain some sort of empathy for the uh, happiness of other people. It makes me happier. I have more sources of happiness then. But then that interconnectedness, you know, it, it brings joy to my life and it gives me purpose and it gives me a sense of uh, you know who I am and what I'm doing and, and it helps me to flourish. So this idea of rebirth also is the same way. It's this constant reincarnation, constant re changing, uh, you know, the opposite of life is not death. The opposite of, uh, death is birth. The birth and death together are a cycle that make life. And so if I keep those things in perspective, it helps me deal with things like uh, fear of death and, fear of change or loss or attachment. Um, so for, for me, that's, that's the function of it in my practice is it just, you know, keeps things in perspective. There's a, there's a little line in, uh, I think it's um, chapter 16 or verse 16th of the Tao Te Ching with the uh, Stephen Mitchell translation where at the very end he says, um, immersed in the wonder of the Tao, I can deal with whatever life brings, and when death comes, I'll be ready. And that little thing of to be able to deal with whatever life brings and to be able to accept and be ready for death, to me that wraps up, if it's a very simple way, all the value of spirituality. Those two, and those two little lines to me, that's sort of the, <laughs> the essence of, uh, of its value for an individual. I mean, obviously it does some more in that it, hopefully it does make us behave better and expands us out. But in that's part of just being able to deal with life, uh, to be able to deal with life well. And um, because, you know, goodness is good because it, it's good for us. Yeah, that is a, that is a great 
uh, quote, and I think it's a great point for us to uh, go ahead and conclude on. It looks like we're running short on our time, but it's been a fascinating discussion. I really enjoy this topic. Um, thanks for joining me, Thomas. Okay, it's been, been a pleasure to be here. And uh, if uh, you all out there listening um, want to leave us a comment, we have a different webpage for every episode and you can leave comments on it. Uh, please join us at snsociety.org. And um, uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and become a member at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemens Rood. Please share our program and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today.